Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Limudcast. I'm Tamar Libicki. In today's episode, I interview Limud Seattle 2019 presenters Gila Klatenik and Samuel Klein. Gila and Samuel talk about Rembrandt, Menasha ben Israel, and Spinoza, three great minds who coexisted in old Amsterdam. Rembrandt made etchings for one of Menasha ben Israel's books. Spinoza began his studies at the Talmud Torah. And this is important to mention Menasha ben Israel, um, who likely taught a young Spinoza when he was in the third grade or fourth grade, so he was exposed to that, but he was surrounded by rabbis who were fluent in Latin. So I want to start talking about the subject of Samuel, your session at Limud last year, um, and I'll just read the title. The heretic, the cleric, and the maverick, unlikely neighbors in old Amsterdam. So first off, who is the heretic, who is the cleric, and who is the maverick? The heretic is... They could all be. (laughs) The the heretic is Boris Ben Spinoza, the Benedict Spinoza. The idea that he is a heretic is, I guess it's it's a phrase, but a maverick too. A cleric, definitely not. Uh, The cleric would be Menashe ben Israel. Menashe ben Israel, uh, who was a young young man at the time, he became a rabbi of the newly formed community, along with uh, the rabbis Abuab and Mortera, Levi Levi Mortera. There were three rabbis who were very active. He was one of them. He was in his 30s at this time. And then the maverick would be Rembrandt Ranrin, the artist, for the qualities that he brought to his painting that really uh, riled up some of the the notable authorities on art of the day and what it meant to do art. Okay, so let's talk about Rembrandt. Sure. Um, So as you said, this is the 350th anniversary of his death, and he is known as one of the greatest painters that there has been. Could you explain a little bit about the cultural and artistic context that brought him up and educated him and gave him the platform to reach even higher? An artist by the name of Michelangelo Marisi del Caravaggio, who was active in the latter part of the 16th century, is known to have been the the grandfather of the technique known as chiaroscuro, that is, working with light and dark shades. And um, chiaroscuro, which was, was really begun in Italy at the time, was the idea of fore- foregrounding the very, very high- the highlights that you can see in paintings that glow and glisten with a sense of intimacy, the interiority of a family in a darkened room or of uh, high drama occurring in the, in the corridor of some palace somewhere. And this idea of chiaroscuro was, I think, one of the the key leads that had Rembrandt in touch with what Caravaggio bequeathed him, which was a real interest in the interplays of lights and darks. This was not, by the way, Rembrandt alone. Rubens, Paul Peter Rubens, who was the master at the time um, and was the the best known of the the old master painters, who was also a diplomat um, in part. Rubens um, was actually very interested in the voluptuousness of figure drawing and Rembrandt borrows from both on the one hand 
Rubens uh, and his interest in characterizing people as people, real people, people from the street, people who you or I might have dinner with, and Caravaggio, who did almost exactly the same half a century before, which was working with some of the, the street folk, people who wanted to engage in a way which was playing with archetypes. They would be an old man, they would be a young woman, they would be uh, a soldier, they would be a sailor, and so on. So Rembrandt takes from both Rubens and Caravaggio, but he brings a different quality to his painting, and that is a visceral quality, which is to say he uses paint not as a clean veneer and gloss, but as a built-up environment in which to portray his characters. So what he does is he takes both the hyper-realism of Caravaggio and the interest in portraiture that Rubens brings, combines them, but brings a third quality, which is the layers of paint that you will know Rembrandt is, is famous for. Mm. So that would be some of the context for Rembrandt's painting. What was his art education like? Is it known how he developed his style? It's known that he was apprenticed to Rubens at some point in his life, but we do not know exactly who he hung out with otherwise. He went on a, on a tour of Italy. Um, he picked up a number of techniques there. But his early days, that is, um, in his teens and early 20s, until he does his first great painting, which is in when he's age 23, is essentially in the dark. We only really know him from when he begins to paint vociferously, which is in his late 20s and 30s. So you spoke a little to me earlier about his self-portraiture, about how many he has, and about how he really tried to portray the different aspects of the human face. I was wondering if you could speak more about that. Rembrandt has, again, the exact, the exact number I don't have with me, but around 120 self-portraits doing one or two a year, at least. His self-portraiture begins quizzically and playfully. In his youth, we see him looking in mirrors, painting himself with various appurtenances, um, whether they are a gasket, which is a neck guard, portraying a soldier, or he's very into sumptuous clothing and enjoys wearing fine velvets and painting, and painting all the, the dark places and wrinkles there. But it gets very interesting when he gets older, at around 50. A self-portrait that I came across when I was at the National Gallery, a self-portrait of Rembrandt when he was 54, 53 rather, um, is incredibly intimate. It's at a time when Rembrandt is undergoing something of a personal stress in his life, and he paints himself really having to come to grips with the idea that while he is, on the one hand, a famous artist is the other hand about to become bankrupt uh, and he's overextended himself and he overextends himself on a house that ends up costing 13,000 guilders mm. on a street not far from the Jews that we're mentioning and it's this house which is now Rembrandt's house which is the Rembrandt Museum which um, ultimately bankrupted him and so Rembrandt is at a moment is an inflection point where he is painting himself both as the master painter and also as a person with worries mm. of the future. What was his relationship with religion? And specifically, since you said he was a few blocks away from the Jewish neighborhood, did he have a relationship 
with the Jewish neighborhood. Rembrandt most certainly had a relationship with the Jewish neighborhood, since many of the of the people, the subjects who sat for him, were uncontestably Jewish. Mm. The question is to what extent he had a relation, an actual relationship with them. Well, Simon Sharma, in his book, um, The Embarrassment of Riches, which is a book about the Dutch Republic, makes mention of a number of paintings that Rembrandt is said to have had commissioned on behalf of wealthy Jews. Mm. The Pintos, for example, uh, one family. The, uh, the Diegos were another family. So these are names that we know he was in touch with. But the only person we know he had an actual relationship with was Ephraim de Bueno, his physician. Um, de Bueno is painted a couple of times. There's also an etching of de Bueno. De Bueno was a gentleman scholar, was, um, was interested in Latin Hebrew translations. And for various reasons, we also know from Rembrandt's own hand that he went to see de Bueno to ask for various ointments for his, for his mistress, um, Henrika, Henrika, for himself, for his family. What the subject of those conversations were beyond asking for you know, various medicines, we don't know. But we do know that de Bueno was close with Menashe ben Israel. And so maybe there was some form of triangle that opened up where de Bueno um, may have introduced Rembrandt to his friend Menashe ben Israel when it came to painting, for example, Belshazzar's Feast. Um, or other paintings that required the knowledge of Hebrew placement. Uh, so there we know that there was some exchange. And beyond that, whether there was bonhomie or conversations about religion or culture, we don't really know. That's the subject of fable. And what did you mean when you said Hebrew placement? So in a number of his works, in Rembrandt's works, there are Hebrew letters. Mm. Rembrandt, for example, in Belshazzar's Feast, he paints many, many tekel ufarsin, which are the Aramaic words which appear, the writing on the wall. The Daniel both interprets and gives the news to Belshazzar. There are other times in which he paints with Hebrew, but the most interesting is actually uh, the Piedra de Gloriosa. The Piedra de Gloriosa was the Stone of Eternity, of Glory, which is a book about uh, the book of Daniel and the coming of the, of the Messiah when the four kingdoms collapse. And there, Rembrandt does etchings for the book, um, which is Menashe ben Israel's book. Mm-hmm. So we know, therefore, most certainly, that Menashe ben Israel commissioned Rembrandt for a number of etchings for his own book, which is a book about the Messianic age. Mm. It's also worth mentioning that Samuel referred to Rembrandt's travels in Italy, and the Italian Renaissance itself often turned to Jews to help the artists learn enough Hebrew so that they can depict Hebrew in their paintings. And this is something that was fairly common, both with the major figures with whom we're familiar about the Renaissance, but even the smaller figures. And that's a representation of really Jewish life in Italy. And you were asking about Jewish life in general. And what's interesting is that Italian life, both artistically and Jewishly, had a large influence on life in Amsterdam for artists and for Jews. So let's talk about Menashe ben Israel um, a little bit. Could you tell me a bit about his biography or background, if it's known, and what role he played within the community? Menashe ben Israel came from a Murano family. His parents came came after the, the wave of the, uh, of the Inquisition um, from Portugal, Quite a bit is known of his early life. 
We do know that he was seen as a, a little bit of a prodigy. He enjoyed Hebrew classes so much that his rabbi believed him to be destined for greatness. And within a few years, he was at the uh, top of the class in Talmud Torah um, and was given special treatment. But his interest was in rhetoric. The earliest annals of his history are about him speaking to the community. Hebrew poetry, Psalms particularly, he had a facility with language. And what he could do, which was um, very important, was be able to translate the words of scripture into Portuguese in a way that was beautiful, lyrical, and captured the imagination of his peers. And so he became something also of, um, of a Hebraicist. And our, our earliest known exchanges with other scholars is his work as a bibliophile and a printer. He owned a printing press. In fact, his printing press was among the most renowned and famous at its time. It wasn't a tremendously successful venture financially. However, it was uh, prodigious in its output. And so Menashe ben Israel became known, not just as a rabbi, but also bibliophile at the center of a ring that was interested in sharing of books in Latin, in Greek, in, uh, in Hebrew. And so this was really what we know of Menashe ben Israel. He was, he was a boundary crosser. He knew how to arrive uh, in certain conversations with theologians, with merchants, with rabbis, with all manner of people, uh, with artists. And this was his great facility, which was his charisma, his personal charisma, uh, and his ability to communicate ideas. So uh, this is what we really know of him as someone who was a spokesperson, an ambassador for the Jewish community in Amsterdam. And you said he was also the rabbi of a community. He was one of the rabbis. He was the youngest yeah. of the rabbis of the community. Uh, Mortera, Saul Levi Mortera, was the eldest. He was a Talmudist, conservative in approach. Abuab came from a Moroccan background. And then Menashe ben Israel was homespun. He'd actually been brought up in old Amsterdam. He was someone who had a facility with the people precisely for that reason. He was of the new community. So this was what really marked him out. He was a new kind of rabbi, cosmopolitan, uh, learned, but also able to move in many circles. And what was the role of a rabbi within a synagogue like that? Were they sermonizing? Did they have other duties within the community? What, what would it look like to be a rabbi at that time? It's an interesting question, and uh, Amsterdam is an intriguing place to investigate that, particularly because two-thirds of their rabbis were imported. So Motera is an Ashkenazi Jew, born in 1596, who's coming from Italy. And uh, Menashe ben Israel is homegrown and, and the youngest. And what was intriguing about how the Jewish community was led is that the rabbis didn't have any executive power in the sense that the ma'amad, which was the lay leadership board, were the ones who really made all the decisions and liaised with the outside governors. And the rabbis were obviously the ones who oversaw ritual affairs, teaching, teaching in the Talmud Torah, Menashe ben Israel taught in the Talmud Torah, and life cycle events. But when it came to external affairs... It was the Ma'amad itself, which was a council of lay leaders who made those decisions. One of the things that is interesting for us to pause on Menashe ben Israel is this moment in 1650 when he is, towards the end of his career, he dies um, some years later in 1657, is, is that 
he became fixated that the Jews who had been thrown out of England in the 13th century needed to return. And The Hope of Israel was published from his printing press and was circulated quite widely and caught the attention of Oliver Cromwell. And I have particular interest in this, uh, given that I am from London, from England. And it was the first time that Oliver Cromwell had invited a delegation led by a rabbi um, back to England. Um, and Cromwell welcomed Mashab in Israel. And Mashab in Israel stayed there for a number of months, petitioning Cromwell to accept the Jews back into England. And uh, ultimately, he did not succeed. But he stacked his entire career, essentially, on this idea that he was the representative on behalf of the Jews to those places that were still, there were no Jews. Mm. Um, and so when he failed in doing so, after a lengthy backwards and forwards, and his, his son Samuel died um, during the course of that time, he returned a broken man. And one might say that, you know, looking at Manasseh ibn Israel's career, often we think of him as the one who petitioned Cromwell um, and did not succeed. But actually, his most glorious moment was when Maria, uh, the wife of Charles I, and her entourage came to the newly formed synagogue, Talmud Torah. He was the one to give the speech. He was the one who welcomed the stadtholder. And I think that there are these two moments, the moments where Benashah ben Israel's younger man is, is in his element, giving it to the crowds, giving, you know, giving them the language of, of Jewish life that they want the stadtholder and the aristocrats to see. And on the other hand, him as a, as a man broken by the winds of change, which had not been kind to him and did not allow the Jews back into England. And there's a, there's a Menashe in Israel who is the younger, and there's a Menashe in Israel who is the older. And I think that both speak to a complexity of character. There's a seriousness to his, his closing years. And there's, an, there's a, somewhat of a frivolity to his opening years. And in that regard, he is similar to Rembrandt, who opens his oeuvre with paintings that very much speak to a man about town, but close with a man deeply involved in personal introspection. Mm. So in that respect, there is this very interesting layover between Menashe ben Israel and Rembrandt in their cultural milieu. Right. And I just wanted to ask something about Menashe ben Israel. He has a legacy that lives on. So a century later, when Jews in Germany are advocating for emancipation, one of the sources to which they turn is actually Menashe ben Israel's work on Jews when he was advocating to have them readmitted to England, but that helps build a case and a precedent for arguing that Jews can be full citizens of a modern nation state. Mm. So let's move on to Spinoza. Spinoza was one of the most important philosophers of his century, and he wrote things that were very contrary to the accepted beliefs of the time. So I was wondering if there's anything about the context where he grew up, the context where he was educated, that can explain how he was able to make such a break in thought. It's important to caution, and this is keeping in the spirit of Spinoza's own philosophy. One of Spinoza's thoroughgoing points throughout all of his works is really a resistance to teleological thinking where we kind of see, and this, and we have a tendency to do this when we're looking at the past or looking at a person's life, where what happens, we can then go back and say, oh, this was always meant to be, or this is how he was destined towards this. So there's a great deal of literature on Spinoza that falls into that trap. 
and says, oh, Spinoza, he, he was raised in this type of community, and that's how he became a quote-unquote heretic, or that's how he was able to, to be a real iconoclast. I believe that Spinoza would not feel comfortable with those types of kind of teleological thinking or looking back into the past to try to understand or justify what happens thereafter. Having said that, Spinoza is raised in a very interesting time and place. Jewishly, he's the grandchild of people who fled, and his own father was not raised to live an openly Jewish life. And yet we see that his father's very involved in the Amsterdam Jewish community, serving multiple times as a Parnes on the Ma'amad, and specifically as Parnes when it came to the Talmud Torah. So we see that he had invested a great deal of his time and his resources in Jewish education. And that's reflected in Bento, who he was, how he was likely called in his own time, probably not actually called Baruch, uh, except in documents like the Cherem itself. And so he has a rich Jewish education and a Jewish education that's a combination both of the converso community as is transitioning into practicing openly Jewishly and the rabbis and educators who are coming from more mainstream Jewish communities. And that's certainly uh, giving him an education in Hebrew, in scripture, in Mishnah. Maybe we're not entirely sure when his studies actually ended, how much he would have studied of the Talmud. And also Kabbalah as well. So he had grand exposure uh, across the, the spectrum of Jewish literature and is fluent in Hebrew and later becomes fluent in Latin. So that's his Jewish education. And in terms of his what would be called a secular education, he studies Latin, he studies mathematics, and he's part of a vibrant intellectual community in Amsterdam at the time vibrant in terms of what's happening with Descartes and Cartesians and a challenge to Cartesian philosophy and kind of really engaging in the new science and also politically as well when it came to his support for the DeWitt brothers and his uh, advocacy for tolerance, which while he did have a lot of peers who believed that, that wasn't the case when it came to kind of mainstream Calvinists in the Dutch Republic. And it's important to recall that while there was a certain tolerance and openness both to the Jewish community and to others, there was a lot of internal strife in the Dutch community when it came to theology. And some of what's happening in the Jewish community itself is impacted by this concern and fear about seeming too open unless that imperil the security of the Jewish community in terms of the Calvinists and others. Mm. And did you say how he obtained his secular education or how he was able to read these different streams of thought? So, and this is important to mention Menashe ben Israel, um, who likely taught a young Spinoza when he was in that third grade or fourth grade, so he was exposed to that, but he was surrounded by rabbis who were fluent in Latin, for example. Menashe ben Israel had a full had a full education as well, so he's certainly part of that community. Hmm. And you mentioned the cherem. I was wondering if maybe we could use the cherem as an introduction to his thought in general. First, just explain what a cherem is, and if it's known, why his was as harsh as it was. It's great that you're asking about the Cherem because tomorrow is the 6th of Av, mm -hmm. and it was actually on the 6th of Av that the Cherem was written against Spinoza. 
So that would have been 363 years ago to the day. So that's poignant. And it was July 27th. 1656, that this writ of excommunication was written against a, a young Spinoza only a year after his father had died. His mother had also died, although when he was younger, and a sister of his had died. So we're also talking about somebody who's an orphan and is now taking over the, his father's business, um, which is struggling financially. But in terms of the cheirem, it's complicated, and scholars love a good controversy, And a lot has been made of the excommunication of Spinoza. Some perspective I got was a number of years ago, I was in Amsterdam. This is well before I even decided to study and focus on Spinoza. And I visited the synagogue there and I asked if they had any documents related to Spinoza. And they said that they did not, but that the municipal archives of Amsterdam did. I asked them to call the archives, see if I could see them. And of course, they said, no, you have to book it six months in advance. But I don't take no for an answer. So I went across town and I talked my way into the Amsterdam archives. And I was taken down into the archives. And from a glass box, a four-inch large tome was handed to me and opened to the page of the writ of Cherem written uh, against Spinoza. And it's written in old Portuguese which I'm not fluent, but of course the name and date and much of it is decipherable. And this cheirem is copied into the the minutes of the synagogue's board meetings, right? So the ma'amad, you turn the page and it tells you the kiddish sponsors. So it's um, a little bit of perspective. And the truth is that this community in particular was very into excommunicating people. And I'm using the word excommunicate because it seems like the best way to render the Hebrew cheirem but I just want to caution against any frighted associations that that might have. Uh, so there were other excommunications, and this community excommunicated somebody who took a library book out of the synagogue's library and didn't return it. Mm-hmm. Somebody who didn't pay the synagogue fees on time could be excommunicated. I mention this because this gives us a bit of a perspective about the excommunication. The cheirem was not so much to close the door and say, goodbye, you're not part of the community. On the contrary, it was seen as a way of inducing people to come back to the community and to stay in the fold. In the case of Spinoza, however, there is mention of his evil opinions and his evil ways. This was likely more to do with a fear of how the Jewish community would appear to the outside non-Jewish authorities than it was on creating conformity within the Jewish community itself. And even though the Jewish community there did enjoy rights in the Dutch Republic because of what was happening with the Calvinists and because of really internal issues uh, within the Christian community in, in Amsterdam, there was a concern that anybody who was outside the fold could jeopardize the stability of the Jewish community. And so the cherem against Spinoza was a way of saying that no problem here with the Jewish community is fine because Spinoza is part of a an intellectual group of people who are challenging the Dutch Republic. He has peers who are thinking along the same lines as he is outside the Jewish community. Last question. How has Spinoza's thought influenced culture in general. How has he been influential on later philosophers, on politics, on even religion? I know that's a big question. It is a huge question, (laughs) and it's really fascinating. Spinoza, there are so many different phases to Spinoza. 
so many different ways of reading him and so many different ways of looking at him. German romantics celebrate him. He's even nowadays, he's considered to be an a rationalist and a metaphysician, while others celebrate him as a grand materialist. His, uh, there's so much there and so much that can be interpreted in different ways. Spinoza certainly is one of the most significant figures in, I would say, the Western philosophical tradition. Aspects of his thought that have been particularly influential are his conception of nature and reality, his ontology. So that led to accusations of atheism. But his political philosophy is also very influential, both in terms of his criticism of state sovereignty, his conception of democracy, his understanding of the, of the relationship between religion and state. He was a major influence on Marx and even on Freud. Actually, nowadays, there's some interest in, in psychology and neuroscience is how he rethinks the mind-body relationship mm. and resists a kind of dualism. Really, two full parts of ethics focus on affects and the nature of emotions and feelings, which a lot of neuroscientists are now pointing at and saying, oh, look, Spinoza said this, because he doesn't believe, which was really quite remarkable at its time, that the mind can control the body. He doesn't believe that we can control our feelings, but that there's an interplay and an interaction there. His epistemology, his ontology, his political philosophy... Religion, I mean, he was the, the parent of biblical criticism. His theological political treatise, the first 16 chapters, are uh, all about criticizing the Bible and its authorship. So he's really had a very broad influence philosophically. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. The Seattle Mooncast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Lubicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guests, Gila Klatenik and Samuel Klein. Samuel will be leading a half-day museum tour and Jewish learning experience in May 2020 at the Seattle Art Museum, titled Radicals and Visionaries, Rebellious Art and Jewish Spiritual Revival and Conversation. Check back at the podcast page closer to the event for more details.